2007, October 11th. Today is Lecture 16 at the Starry Messenger, Galileo Galilei and the Telescope. Yesterday we learned about Tycho Brahe, the last of the great pre-telescope astronomers, and Johannes Kepler, the great mathematician who analyzed Tycho's data and essentially did away completely with Aristotle's rules for how the planets moved and found three new rules that planets orbit on ellipses with the sun located at one focus, that planets move around that ellipse in such a way that a line drawn from the sun to the planet sweeps out equal areas in equal times, explaining why planets appear to move fastest when they're closer to the sun and slower when they're further away. Just like the Earth, when it's closer to the sun in January, moves, moves faster around the sun, so the sun moves faster along the ecliptic and the season is shorter than it is in the summer when we're far from the sun and the Earth is moving slower and the sun is therefore moving in reflex or appears to be moving slower along the ecliptic. And finally, the most surprising rule of all, the so-called harmonic law, that the square of the period was proportional to the size of the semi-major axis of the orbit cubed. That Mars had the period around the sun it did because of the size of its orbit. Nothing else. A surprising rule. It was saying that the planets moved in the way they did because they were obeying some underlying physical law. But Kepler could not write down mathematically what that law was. He actually didn't have the mathematical language to describe moving bodies. He also did not possess the, an idea of how moving bodies actually work, what the physics of moving bodies was. And that really was, in many ways, I think, was sort of the tragedy of Kepler. He saw very clearly, for the first time, probably the first person ever, to see how the planets really did move, but he couldn't make that next leap to understand why they moved that way. That effort was to take another generation entirely, but it fell to the t person we're talking about today to make the next two steps, Galileo Galileo. Galileo Galilei was a contemporary of Tycho and Kepler, but his main contribution that we're going to talk about today was that Galileo not only had the beginnings of the notions of the proper way of describing the motions of objects, Galileo was also to get past the limitation that Tycho had of using the naked eye as the way to view the universe. Galileo was the first person to systematically apply the brand new invention of the telescope to the sky and extend human beings' vision to the point that we began to make new discoveries of the heavens. So today's key ideas is I want to introduce Galileo Galilei, in many ways the first modern astronomer. He was in many ways also one of the first modern scientists along with Kepler. What really makes Galileo stand out in this particular lecture is the discoveries he made with the newly invented telescope. He himself did not invent the telescope, but he was the first to apply it systematically. And in particular, I want to focus on four main discoveries that Galileo made that firmly convinced him of the truth of the Copernican system. The moon, he discovered the four bright moons of Jupiter, that Venus undergoes phases like the moons, and that the pattern of those phases was to prove that Venus moved around the sun and not the earth. He saw that the moon was cratered and had mountains, it had terrain relief like the earth, and therefore it was a world like the earth. And he saw sunspots, that there was change even on the sun, and even showed that the sun was rotating about its own axis. These were very compelling arguments that really convinced Galileo that Copernicus was correct. But this thought, by now, in the early part of the 17th century, brought him into direct confrontation with the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. That same church that had pretty much not done anything 
when Copernicus first published his book nearly a century before, now the church could no longer ignore the implications of setting the earth in motion around a sun-centered solar system. Galileo Galilei was born in 1564 and lived until 1642. He was an Italian contemporary of, of Johannes Kepler's. He was an extremely gifted mathematician. He was a brilliant observer and experimenter. As a young man, he began to undertake a series of experiments in the physics of moving bodies that for reasons I, no one really understands, he kind of set aside early in life and actually was to pick them up later in life. We'll see some of the results of that on Monday when we start talking about the physics of gravity. But for now, I want to concentrate on Galileo the astronomer. He was a, actually, he was a member of the middle class. Um, he was very well educated. His father, Vincenzo Galilei, was actually one of the principal lute composers of the Florentine school before him. For those of you who know music, if you know something called stile recitative, that was actually invented by Vincenzo Galilei, his father. Galileo grew up in an educated atmosphere, and he grew up in a skeptical atmosphere, the skeptical atmosphere of freewheeling Renaissance Florence. He was also imbibed from his father. His father, Vincenzo, also made a number of advances in the science of acoustics. He studied vibrating strings and, and vibrating columns of air in organ pipes. Galileo picked that up from his father, but he had even more genius than his father for mechanics. He began to really value getting your hands on something, experimenting, and seeing for yourself what the phenomena were, rather than simply appealing to the authority of Aristotle or the other great doctors and simply applying those as if they were God-given doctrines to describe how things moved. This set him on an immediate intellectual collision course, both as his times as a student and later in his professional life, with the Aristotelian establishment of the day. And in many cases, that Aristotelian establishment of the universities was also part of the established Roman Catholic Church. A Catholic Church which, by the beginning of the 17th century, after nearly a century of the Protestant Reformation, had finally begun to move its vast bulk in a counter-reformation to fight and counter the Protestant upsurge. And so Galileo was to find himself always through his life at odds with the establishment. It didn't help that Galileo was A, usually right, and B, that he had the personality that wanted to let you know that. He actually turned out to be a fairly arrogant man. Even though we often portray Galileo as a bit of a victim, when you read his writings and those of letters of contemporaries, you realize Galileo may have been right, but he was also sometimes his own worst enemy. Galileo was very early in life convinced of the Copernican system. Long before Galileo became famous as an astronomer, he started a correspondence with then the most famous astronomer of Europe, Johannes Kepler. In the year 1597, the last year of Aronenberg, and the two, three, three years before Kepler was hired by Tycho to begin that miraculous re reduction of the data of Mars that was to show the laws of motion, Kepler and Galileo struck up a correspondence. And it's very interesting that one of the things that Galileo wrote to Kepler in 1597 was as follows. Like you, I accepted the Copernican position many years ago and discovered from thence the cause of many natural effects which are doubtless inexplicable by the current theories. I have not dared until now to bring my reasons and refutations into the open. The Copernican system was certainly discussed, but it was very anti-establishment. Galileo was not well established. He did not have a professorship. He, if, you know, by modern standards, he didn't have tenure. He didn't have a powerful protector or patron yet, even though he lived in the Florence of the very powerful Medici family. 
But he wrote to Kepler as in, in sort of this vast intellectual underground that was beginning to realize that the old Aristotelian view of the world was falling apart and something had to replace it, something better. And so Galileo was part of that intellectual ferment looking for answers. And this is part of the answers he found, but he was still limited. In 1597, the technology for studying the sky was the good old Mark I human eye. Kepler was nearsighted. He couldn't make a scientific observations of his own. Galileo had tremendously clear sight, but even he knew the limitations of the techniques of the time. And he didn't have the money or the backing like Tycho Brahe to build the exceedingly expensive instruments that made Brahe's work possible. But then Galileo caught a break. In the year 1608, a Dutch spectacle maker by, the, maker by the name of Hans Lipperhey, this picture is in the upper right-hand corner here, notice that, according to legend, notice that some children in his eyeglass shop were playing games by putting two lenses in front of each other. Lay a bunch of different little pickup glass lenses in front of kids, and they'll, they'll look at things, they'll magnify things, and pretty soon they'll start holding them up and looking at the funny shapes people's faces get as they go in and out of focus. And you notice how one of them said, ooh, look, that church steeple looks closer than before, picked up the lenses of the children and for himself suddenly realized, oh, I can see something far away as if it's close. And according to legend in that moment, invented the spyglass, or what we now call the telescope. Word spread extremely fast after Lipperhey built a few. He was kind of a, a bit of an operator and he actually began to build and tried to market them to the Dutch government. By 1609, you could actually buy telescopes in eyeglass shops in Paris, little tiny spyglasses. They'd begun to make their way through the courts of Europe. Galileo had heard about them. The first one had reached Italy in August of 1609, and Galileo actually got it. He was at Pisa at the time. He went to go try to see it, but the little traveling road show that someone had with their spyglass had left town. Now, these spyglasses weren't very powerful. They were no better than little tiny opera glasses or the little plastic telescopes you sometimes get in a, in a box of Cheerios or something. But Galileo wanted to know what this was. He realized its potential, but he, he didn't know how it worked. But luckily, a friend of his wrote him a letter saying, I just saw this most marvelous machine, and he made this extremely crude sketch of the spyglass. We have this from a surviving letter in the Galileo archives. Galileo, who knew something about optics, immediately grasped the principle, began to teach himself how to make his own lenses, and by the year 1610 had refined a new design of telescope that was vastly more powerful and had higher quality than any existing spyglass of the time. Galileo learned about it in 1609 and he began to set about solving these technical problems. He built spyglasses until he eventually reached the point that he got a magnifying power of 20 times. Sorry, I jumped a little ahead on the slide there. It wasn't very long before Galileo decided to turn the telescope from terrestrial sights, looking at the towers in distant Florence or something like that, to turn and look at the nighttime sky. This is Galileo's original telescope and the original lens in front of it in a fancy mounting here. It's long since cracked. This is in the Museum of the History of Science in Florence. Um, I had the great pleasure this summer on vacation of actually seeing these telescopes. Uh, they were behind a glass case, but actually if you kind of put your head down and kind of avoided the security camera a bit, you could look up through the hall. It was really cool. But all I got to see was the far wall. What Galileo saw was, in his own words, a most beautiful and delightful sight. He began to see things in the sky that no human being had ever seen before. The telescope was showing him amazing wonders. 
And Galileo didn't just go, wow, that's cool. Galileo was a smart guy. He realized that he was making profound discoveries, and so he set about writing them down. And in the year 1610, he published a little tiny book, actually practically no more than a pamphlet of the time, called the Sidereus Nuncius, the Starry Messenger. His later observations, he continued making observations, were to be published in a second book of observations called The Assayer, which was published in the year 1623. But it was the Sidereus Nuncius that was his bestseller. It was the Sidereus Nuncius that overnight made him one of the most famous scientists in all of Europe. He made many different observations. The, the assayer is a fairly detailed book. He kept very careful records. There was Galileo the experimenter coming through. He was precise, he was careful, and he kept wonderful notebooks. And these books are, in a sense, the distillation of his notebooks. So we have surviving to us in these many books, which were spread all over Europe, because one of the things he did was he got the attention of the Medici family in Florence. The Duke Cosimo, I'm actually Duke Ferdinand de Medici, immediately made him a member of the court, gave him a lifetime professorship, basically the, immediately going from a junior professor to a full professor with tenure and a big enough salary that Galileo was actually able to enter the upper middle class. Furthermore, the Medici family, through their ambassadors to the rest of Europe, spread copies of telescopes and Galileo's books, paying for the production of those telescopes, and word spread extremely fast. There are four observations, however, that are very critical to us here in Galileo. They are the observations of craters and mountains on the moon. In fact, even the cheapo spy glasses of Paris could actually show you the moon was spotty looking, but Galileo's telescope is powerful enough to show those spottiness suddenly snap into focus as craters and mountains. Then he saw that there were sunspots on the sun and that there was solar rotation because he could see the pattern of sunspots move as the sun rotated upon its axis. He saw four previously unknown moons of Jupiter. This was the most profound observation of that, a discovery of planets, if you will, that no one had ever seen, to use the language of the day. And finally, his observations of the phases of Venus that he undertook at the urgings of a friend of his, a guy named Benedetto Castelli, Castelli who said, you know, if you really want to prove the Copernican system is right, I bet Venus is probably one of the keys. And so he urged Galileo to make systematic observations of Venus. That turned out to be a very, very good suggestion because it in fact turns out to be one of the most damning pieces of evidence to destroy once and for all the Ptolemaic system. This is a reproduction of a copy of the Sidereus Nuncius. This is actually a copy from a library in Holland. And one of the pages within the Sidereus Nuncius showing a section of the constellation of Orion. You could see just only about, as you may recall, about 6,000 stars with the naked eye. When you turn the telescope upon the dark night sky of Florence in the 17th century, you suddenly saw things like the Milky Way become nothing but clouds of millions upon millions of otherwise invisible stars. Galileo realized he was very much onto something. If he was pretty solidly convinced of Copernicanism before, what he was to see through his telescope was to convince him utterly and give him the conviction to push his ideas forward. For example, his observations of the moon. He showed the moon was, in fact, had terrain relief. It wasn't the perfect, if somewhat mottled, sphere of Aristotle. It had terrain. It had vast plains. It had mountains. And these odd craters all over the place that no one could understand. The moon was a world that looked seemingly like the Earth with terrain relief. Furthermore, Galileo went one step further. Later in the assayer, he measured the sizes of the shadows here, and knowing the phases of the moon, actually measured the heights of those mountains and craters.
So he began a system, the first systematic study of the moon as a physical body, as another world like the Earth. Here's a picture of Galileo's sunspots. They were actually put forth in a, in, a, in a later book. This is actually from the assayer that I'm showing here, as well as a book called The Sunspot Letters. And I show it next to a, a modern photograph of the sun showing sunspots. Galileo probably did not actually discover sunspots. There are reports that go back as far as even um, ancient China where they may have been seen by the naked eye under very large sunspot groups at sunset, even though it's a fearsomely difficult and dangerous thing to do and never ever look at the sun with your naked eye. Very rarely under the right conditions, like say through heavy smoke, people did see spots upon the face of the sun, but it was so hard to get those, those conditions they never repeated. With the telescope, and he didn't use his eyes, he would have blinded himself almost immediately, he projected the image onto a white paper card and could see in the magnified image of the sun these sunspots and then sketch them upon that card. As he watched them from year to year, this is part of the sunspot letters, this is a pair of observations taken two days apart in 1613. Take a look at this group of spots here. Two days later, that group of spots is down here. And this group of, other group of spots here has begun to rotate into position and a new group is rotated away. You can see the general sense of rotation of the sun. To Aristotle, the idea that a massive body could be rotating about its own axis was an absurdity. And there was the sun rotating on its axis for all to see. Furthermore, the sun's face was not perfect. There is the sun, the epitome of the perfection of the celestial realm. And it's got the celestial equivalent of acne. It's got spots all over its face that change and wax and wane through time. The Aristotelian ideas were just plain wrong. If a huge, but it really raised this one question. If a huge object like the sun is rotating, then why is it such an absurdity that the Earth rotates once about its axis every day? It began to really call into question all the so-called truths of the common sense view of the world, that something about our common sense view of the world just wasn't right. One of the most stupendous discoveries was when he turned the telescope to the planet Jupiter, which was high in the sky of January 1610. On the first night, he saw two bright stars to the east of Jupiter and thought, ah, I'm just seeing a couple of the fixed stars. As Jupiter moves with respect to the stars, since he was, uh, Jupiter was actually in retrograde motion at this time, it should move to the west. And on the next night, sure enough, it had moved to the west a bit. But then the next night, hey, what's, what's going on here? And the next night, hey, the stars were moving. Those, what he thought were stars were actually moving with Jupiter. And as he watched them night after night, he realized that they had followed Jupiter around the sky, and they were, in fact, circling Jupiter. They were moons, circling Jupiter like the moon circles the Earth. But there were four of them. They are impossible to see with the naked eye. And yet there they were, revealed by his 20-power telescope. In fact, here is a modern photograph which I have scaled to the scale of Jupiter here in this sketch taken from a translation, obviously, of the Sidereus Nuncius. You can actually go back with a computer program. I've done this. It just doesn't work very well in this particular format. For the dates in Galileo's logs, you can look at his pictures and run the computer program and exactly reproduce the positions of the so-called now four Galilean moons of Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto with their modern name. Galileo knew what he was talking about when he called these the Medicean stars and dedicated them to the Medici family. That dedication was not lost on the Medici, and it's why Galileo had his much better position in life. 
It also turned out to be very useful to him in later years because the Medici were politically very powerful. But if we get away from all the politics, what's really important here also with the moons of Jupiter is in the Aristotelian view of the world, the Earth is the only fixed center of motion. Everything wheels about the Earth or about the center of the system. But here was manifest in the sky a system of four little moons moving not about the Earth but about Jupiter. Jupiter was a center of motion. So if Jupiter could be a center of motion, the Earth is not the only center of motion in the universe. And by extension, perhaps then, it's not so crazy to think maybe the Sun is really the ultimate center of motion in the universe. So again, these observations, none of them individually prove Copernicus is right or disprove the Ptolemaic system. But they really stop and make you think, well, what is actually going on? Maybe we should take this Copernican idea seriously. Well, if that didn't make people take Copernicus seriously, the observations of Venus did. Venus shows phases like the moon. But it also changes size, such that when Venus is nearly full phase, it's really tiny. When it's half phase, it grows larger. And when it's crescent phase, it's even bigger still. These proportions are from a letter called Il Saggiatore, uh, published sometime in the 16-teens. I forget the exact year. Here's a modern photograph of the course of the phases of Venus through the course of the year 2002. It was taken by amateur astronomer Chris Proctor. Shows Venus nearly full face, really tiny disk. But as it moves around through half to crescent moon, it's getting closer to us. It's not circling the Earth, it's circling the Sun. On the left-hand side is the Copernican system, which predicted that the, sun, the Venus should be a circle inside the circle of the Earth's orbit, centered upon the Sun. And as it moves through these different positions, when it's at positions 1 and 6 here, it's close to us, so it will appear bigger on the sky. But we only see a small fraction of the illuminated face, and so we see a crescent Venus. The crescents pointing their horns away from the sun in the sky. As it moves to position 2 and 5, in roughly an angle, it appears as a near half Venus, but smaller. And finally, when you get to position 3 and 4, just before it vanishes behind the sun, it appears as these gibbous shapes, but they're smaller. The Ptolemaic system, on the other hand, is over here on the right. It posited that Venus rode on an epicycle, which rode on a center between the sun and the Earth. That's why Venus never got more than 47 degrees from the sun. But the pattern of phases you would get at these identical positions on its orbit is a sequence of crescents. It never becomes half, half Venus. It never becomes nearly full and gibbous. This proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Venus must circle the sun. It can't circle some empty deferent place in the middle of the, in the, in the, middle of the solar system somewhere. If, and nothing damage the Ptolemaic system more than the observations of the phases of Venus. Now, it doesn't, however, prove the Copernican system. I can't say, well, when it rains, the street is wet. If I walk outside and say, the street's wet, therefore it's raining. How do I know someone didn't just dump a bucket of water on the floor? Obviously, water falling on the street can indeed make it wet, but we have to find some other data to show that only rain had made the street wet. I'm playing a little bit of a rhetorical game, but I did so on purpose. That style of argumentation was used to say, okay, fine, we'll give you the fact the Ptolemaic doesn't work, but this doesn't prove the Copernican system works. Because what you haven't proven is that the Earth is in motion. After all, Tycho's system 
had Venus going around the sun, but then it had Venus, the sun, and everything else going about a fixed Earth. So this shows that Venus must move around the sun, but it does not prove that the Earth is in motion around the sun. That's always going to be the sticky point of all these observations. But there was, if it didn't prove Copernicus, it certainly eliminated Ptolemy as a, as a contender. The impact of Galileo's observations, however, was immediate and forceful. He became, it was just electrified Europe at the time. Galileo immediately became the most famous scientist in Europe. Kepler, up in Germany, and was absolutely delighted with the observations. And he soon was able to, by pestering people enough, got his own copy of the telescope and began making his own observations of the sky. The telescope was just a, a godsend to Kepler. Kepler, who was nearsighted, could barely see the stars, but with the telescope, he could see the moons of Jupiter. I can't imagine what Kepler must have felt like to have seen that after all he had studied for so long. But more importantly than just making Kepler happy, who was already a convinced Copernican, it was the other scholars who all of a sudden realized they had to take the Copernican view seriously because here were a series of observed phenomena that could not be explained with the Aristotelian Ptolemaic view of the world. There must be some other explanation. And so even if it didn't convince them of the correctness of the Copernican view, it got them thinking that maybe we should start thinking this through. Maybe we shouldn't just reflexively say, because Aristotle and Ptolemy said so. And that sometimes is even more important than having proof, is getting people to think. It's interesting that if you look at the history of ideas, nobody after 1612, which is about the time that the, that the uh, observations of Galileo had made their way through Europe, no serious scholar put forward any new refinements of a geocentric system. All discussion in the literature from there on out are discussions of how to see if the Copernican system may or may not be right. So it really caused an intellectual sea change within Europe. But it didn't convince everybody. There were still some hardcore skeptics who claimed that the telescope and Galileo were lying and they deeply entrenched. But Galileo had done more than just make a few observations. He had profoundly changed the rules of the game. Copernicus was a hardcore mathematician. Kepler was a hardcore mathematician. You really couldn't read and understand their works unless you too were pretty much up there in mathematical world. The average person on the street could not pick up Copernicus and Kepler because they were written in Latin, for heaven's sake, and they were deeply technical. But with a telescope, anybody scholar or not, could see these wonders for themselves. It made a significant change in the way in which the whole intellectual discussion was to proceed. And that was to be tremendous for Galileo and also a tremendous risk. Galileo certainly showed the members of the church, of course this was, this was Italy, it was Catholic Italy, he began to show people the sights through his telescope, even all the way up to the College of Cardinals and the Collegium Romanum in, in, uh, in Rome. The Jesuit fathers were shown the sights through the telescope. Not everybody wanted to look through the telescope. Some of them had claimed that the telescope was a trick and that Galileo and the telescope were lying. That this was all a trick. And we, if you can't see it with the naked eye, it doesn't exist. Galileo had some choice words about that. In a letter to Kepler in 1611, describing some new observations he had made, he said, my dear Kepler, what would you say of the learned here who, replete with the pertinacity of the asp, have steadfastly refused to cast a glance through the telescope? What shall we make of this? Shall we laugh or shall we cry? 
The establishment wasn't buying it, or at least some aspects of the establishment were buying it. And this was to set Galileo onto an immediate collision course with that establishment. But to his surprise, that establishment was to include the Roman Catholic Church. Now, this is not to say that no one in the church used the telescope. This is Christopher Shiner. He is a Jesuit priest. And that, in the background, is actually an advanced telescope. Shiner and members of the Collegium Romanum, who were all Jesuits, who even then as now were among the most educated scientifically of the Roman Catholic uh, clergy, began to build their own solar telescopes. Here's one shown making observations, projecting the face of the sun onto a card, so it's easy to see. There's a painting of Shiner pointing to his assistant as sketches are made. And in fact, they are looking at the macula, the spots upon the face of the sun. So the first argument that Galileo got into with members of the church was not over theology or Copernican system, but over sunspots. He began to, if you will, taunt the Jesuit scholars who were saying that the sunspots were things simply floating between the earth and the sun, getting in the way and occulting the disk of the sun. And he did not do so in a very tactful way, which was kind of unfortunate, because the Jesuits were the intellectual core of the Roman Catholic Church at the time, and if he had been able to at least make them allies and convince them rather nicely of what was going on, he might have had powerful intellectual allies within the church hierarchy. Instead, he basically set about making fun of the sillier things they said and turned them into enemies. That was Galileo's political mistake number one. Galileo's political mistake number two was to overestimate his influence as the most, power, as the most famous scientist in Europe. In the year 1616, Galileo visited Rome and was feted by all of the scholars of Rome, showed people the sights through the telescope. But he was called before Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who was the, the chief cardinal at the head of the Office of the Propagation of the Faith. In Latin, the, the propaganda fidei, and the word propaganda, in fact, our word propaganda is, is derived from that word. It was the office that was meant to fight the Reformation. They were the center, the intellectual and theological center of the Counter-Reformation. Robert Bellarmine was known as the Hammer of the Heretics. It was Bellarmine who was on the court that burned Gal uh, Giordano Bruno at the stake in 1600. Galileo was called before who had to be the most powerful man in the church after the Pope, and they had a discussion about the heliocentric system, which shortly before Galileo's arrival, Bellarmine's office had officially declared Copernicus's heliocentric system to be, quote, philosophically false and at least an erroneous belief. They didn't call it heretical. It wasn't damaging to the faith, but they felt that it was not philosophically and perhaps even religiously sound. So there were deep doubts about this. They officially banned De Revolutionibus, Copernicus's book describing his system, until certain minor corrections were made. Those corrections were made by crossing out key passages that they felt went against certain passages in the Old Testament scriptures, and it was allowed to be printed once again in Catholic countries. Galileo was called to an audience before Bellarmine, and Bellarmine cautioned him verbally to stop teaching or defending the Copernican model in public. Bellarmine said, look, this is largely an intellectual, an intellectual argument going on that you don't want to risk damaging the faith of those who are not able to follow the detailed technical discussions that are going on. Kind of keep it to yourself. Now, Bellarmine in that discussion had thought of the possibility that Galileo might dig his heels in and actually try to resist. Galileo was no fool. He realized who Robert Bellarmine, uh, I might point out by 1930 later, Saint Robert Bellarmine, was, and decided that the best option was to agree with everything that Bellarmine said. 
So Bellarmine did not have to bring out the second thing that was in his pocket, which was a direct written order forbidden, forbidding him to discuss or teach the Copernican system in any way whatsoever. Since Galileo was agreeable, they were gentlemen, they agreed verbally, and that document was set aside. But it was not destroyed, and it is going to re reappear in a few years. Now, Galileo, having been warned not to teach things, kind of kept his head down for a while. He continued making observations. He continued publishing letters describing his observations. After all, as long as he didn't interpret them in terms of the Copernican system, there were no arguments between him and the office of the, of the propagation of the faith. In the year 1624, Galileo wrote up his arg detailed arguments for and against the Copernican system. And he, instead of writing it as a direct mathematical treatise, he wrote it as a dialogue between three friends who gathered together. It's a very common literary style of the time. A protagonist who is for the Copernican system, a second protagonist who is for the Ptolemaic system, and then a third character who's kind of a foil. He asks the leading questions to kind of move the conversation along. And the book is literally a conversation about this. He tried to seek permission from the Pope to, uh, to publish this, Pope Urban VIII, but he was largely rebuffed. Urban VIII, as a cardinal, was actually a friend of Galileo's and a supporter. But when Urban put on the hat and became the Pope, the power kind of began to go to his head. He began to bring some of his cousins into the College of Cardinals, all that kind of good stuff. And over time, he realized that Galileo thought his influence with Urban was enough that he could make his arguments go forward. So in 1632, he managed to get his dialogue published in Florence. Notice the time scan. That's almost eight years has elapsed. He finally managed around to publishing the dialogue, not in Latin, but in Tuscan Italian, the dialect of Florence. It was immediately an instantaneous success. Galileo was a remarkably good prose stylist. Even in translation, Galileo was readable today nearly 400 years later. But he made a couple mistakes in this. One, here is the, here is the cover of the book. The Dialogue of Galileo Galilei, Society of Lincea, mathemat Mathematician, blah, 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 from Pisa, even though he was in Florence at the time, dedicated to the serene uh, High Duke of Tuscany, the, keeping his friends the Medici in line. It was a discussion on the various systems of the world between three friends. A man named um, Simplicio. Mm. man named Simplicio was the... Uh, was the defender of the Ptolemaic system. A man named Sagredo was the defender of the Copernican system. And then their friend, whose name I've immediately skipped out of my head, was the foil. Now, for those of you who know Italian or Latin, simplicio means a simpleton. Sagredo means a wise man. It, notice the language here is not Latin. It's Italian. Published with the license superiore. So he convinced the church, church authorities to give him a license to print it. But notice that in the hand of Sagredo, whether, whatever position Galileo may have come down on, and at the end of the dialogue, they all assume, well, yeah, at the end of all of our arguments, we have to sort of give in to the biblical view of the world, and so, of course, the Ptolemaic system is right. But as if to signal to the world what he really thought, the only system visible on the front cover was the Copernican system in the hands of Sagredo. Well, if Galileo thought he was going to get away with something, he was about to be severely disabused of that notion. 
A year after the publication of, 1632, publication of the dialogue in 1632, this time he was not summoned by Cardinal Bellarmine, who had died many years before. He was summoned by the Roman Inquisition. A document was then produced at this summons, alleging that in 1616, Bellarmine had specifically forbade him to discuss the Copernican system in any way. It was the unused written brief that Bellarmine had never used, only now it had been taken from Bellarmine's records and details of it, as we, and we actually have this record today in the, in the Vatican Library. Details of that document can be seen. The basic document had been altered. In other words, it had been forged. The forged document, of course, Galileo was never allowed to see. He wasn't even going to have a chance. He found himself facing two charges. Not the teaching of Copernicus. He was taught, charged with disobedience of Bellarmine's orders forbidding him to teach a forbidden doctrine and B, of misleading the censors who granted him the permission to publish the dialogue because of this any way whatsoever. A dialogue written in Tuscan is not is teaching in public in any way. And so they got him for, for hoodwinking the censors and for disobeying Bellarmine's orders. The first is nonsense. Bellarmine did not give him a direct order not to discuss it in scientifically or in, as an intellectual exercise. And the third part turns out actually to be true. Galileo tried a little sleight of hand to get the document permission to publish. How else was he going to get it published in Catholic Florence? Galileo, when faced with these charges, had no chance to even defend himself. He knew he was, he knew he was had. What had really happened behind the scenes was not necessarily a problem with the Copernican system. Galileo had made a number of enemies within the church establishment. Unfortunately, one of those enemies was Urban VIII, the Pope himself. Galileo's enemies within the church had convinced Urban VIII that the simpleton in the, in the, in the dialogue, the man who defended rather ineptly the Ptolemaic system, was a caricature of Urban VIII himself, and that Galileo was not only ridiculing the Ptolemaic system, he was personally ridiculing the Pope. The Pope bought it. And as a consequence, he brought the entire power of the church to bear on Galileo. And this is really what happened to him. He really basically, he made the wrong enemies, and those enemies were well placed to basically nail him to the wall. He had no choice. He was publicly humiliated. The Roman Inquisition was extremely powerful. It had complete power to not only torture him, but also to put him to death if necessary. And he knew what he would be facing with this. And he knew the charges against him were unanswerable. And so the trial, such as it was, didn't last very long. He was basically threatened with torture if he failed to, uh, to admit to his, to his errors. He knew, as a person who was educated of his time, he was a medical doctor at some level, or he certainly knew medicine. He knew what the instruments of torture were capable of doing to the human body, and he was 70 years old, and he didn't even want to face it. So he was, had no choice but to admit and abjure, curse and detest the aforesaid errors and heresies, and to do so in writing on his knees before the Inquisition in Rome in the year 1633. The entire ceremony had only one purpose, to publicly humiliate him before the entire Catholic world. And here, in fact, is a portion of that abjuration over the, 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 the signature of Galileo. But Galileo had one good thing going for him. He had the protection of the extremely powerful Medici family, and he was the most 
famous scientist of Europe. The church probably would not have dared to execute him or torture him. That would have been too difficult, and they were involved in too many political, political machinations going on to try to keep their own power intact. The Medici dukes were able to protect him, and he was able to transmit what should have been life imprisonment to go to his basically house arrest for the remainder of his life in his villa in Arcetri, which is a small suburb of Florence where he was to remain under the control of the church until the year 1642 when he died. Now at this point, the legends usually say that Galileo's spirit was broken. Nothing could be more further from the truth. In 1636, stuck in his home, he picked up that study of mechanics that he'd let go as a, as a young man and put it together as a book called The Two New Sciences, which laid the foundation of modern physical mechanics. It was smuggled out of Catholic Italy, and it was published in Protestant Leiden in the year 1638. It was to lay the foundations of classical physics and to set the stage for Isaac Newton. This summer, I had a rare privilege. I gave a talk at our Chetri Observatory, and they allowed me and my wife to go over and pay a visit to Galileo's villa, which has just recently been restored. Here it is on the outside in a street in Florence in our Chetri, a plain-looking place, except for the bust of Galileo put in recent years. If I was going to make the Pope pissed at me and I wanted to go into life imprisonment, I could not ask for a better view out my back window. This view is the classic Tuscan countryside. That is the convent where Galileo's beloved daughter was a nun. Galileo spent the last four years of his life, unfortunately, in blindness. The man who had taught mankind to see further than any other himself was to go blind in his final years. And he died still under house arrest, still unforgiven by the church, on the 8th of January, 1642. On Christmas Day of that year, Isaac Newton was born in Woolthorpe, England. And the game for the church and everyone else who doubted Ptolemy and doubted Copernicus was pretty much going to be over. It was not until 1992, 350 years after the death of Galileo, that Pope John Paul II was to reopen the case and to say that Galileo was declared officially innocent. But the church was way behind the curve on this one. Not too long after that change in the church's heart, a spacecraft fired its engines and settled into orbit around the planet Jupiter. Over the course of the next few years, it would study each of the moons of Jupiter. The spacecraft name was Galileo. I'll see you all tomorrow.